Welcome back to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 36, Putting on the Dots and Prancing Around edition. I'm your host, Tosh Robinson, senior editor at the Dissolve. This week, George Miller's new Mad Max movie got us thinking about the old Mad Max movies and how much action in film has changed since the 1970s. We'll talk about what practical effects and CGI mean to us these days, our favorite action eras, and what we'd like to see in action going forward. Then, revisiting Mad Max 36 years later has us talking about what it's like to rewatch movies after the hype has died down when we can notice more in different things, and what it's like when we change our minds about movies. This week's game jumps off pitch perfect and forces contestants to identify acapella renditions of movie songs and movie themes. And as always, we'll close with our competitive recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned. Recently on the site, new contributor Kevin Lincoln walked us through the action in George Miller's original 1979 iteration of Mad Max in an essay titled, What Modern Action Films Can Learn from the Original Mad Max. In part, his argument was that modern action films, like the Avengers Age of Ultron, have lost some of the core values that made the cheap practical effects and clear staging of 1970s action so compelling. With a brand new updated Mad Max hitting theaters and being sold as a throwback full of practical effects and old school action values, this seemed like a perfect time to consider how action movies have evolved over the last several decades, what's being gained and lost with the move to CGI, and how we feel about action movies these days in general. Here to take action is... Keith Phipps. And as our special guest in the studio today, we have a longtime friend of the Dissolve, local film writer and podcaster Josh Larson of the much-revered Film Spotting podcast and the commentary site Larson on Film. Welcome to our fancy podcasting studio slash storage facility, Josh. Yeah, now that I've seen the inner sanctum of the Dissolve, found the secret door, I feel like it's all been opened up to me. In the process, he, uh, he just slugged Keith's mic. Yes. It's not I, a I also talk with my hands, and I've noticed you guys don't have the facilities for that. You have everything else, but we need a little more air room. We're planning on ordering hand talking uh, equipment later on. But Excellent. For the for the most part, you know, we're we're still we're still doing digital. You can wave your e hand by pressing a button. So, guys, I feel like with with the move to CGI in films away from practical effects, people have gotten this nostalgia for practical effects that I'm not sure always reflects what they're actually seeing on film. It's just that sort of feeling of something is lost, therefore we mourn it, regardless of, of what they're seeing. I mean, to, just to start with, what are your personal feelings on the move away from practical effects and towards digital ones? I, I don't, it's not a total loss for me. I just think it's a matter of, of how you use your tools, you know, how you use your tools well, you know. And I actually think, uh, not not to, to take argument with Kevin's uh, very good essay, but I th- thought the, the action in the second Avengers film was much cleaner and more coherent and made better use of, of CGI than, than in the first one. Uh, so um, that being said, I, I am old. Uh, so I, I also do feel like there there is... Uh, as good as CGI tools are, there's really still something about practical effects that that I think is tangible and that's noticeable. And even if it's not uh, easy to, to to hash out, you know, put into words why practical effects work in a way that CGI effects don't, um, I still feel. Well, and it's not an either or thing as well. I mean, there can be examples of CGI being used to enhance practical effects, ideally in ways we don't even recognize. And I think the Fast and the Furious franchise did a fairly good job of doing that. I think of that... One of the reasons I do appreciate that franchise overall and think the critical attention towards it is deserved is because it seems to have a practical effects mindset first. 
but then it will use CGI or green screen or post-production tricks to enhance that and make us really believe these insane things that are happening are happening. As far as Avengers, CGI isn't something that we need to bemoan out of hand. It is how you use it, as Keith said. And I think Avengers films have found a way, and if they do it again a third time, it'll be a little bit of a cliche, but to use CGI or at least digital post-production to give us the feel of a real practical action scene, and that's the long take we discussed, Tasha, when you were on Film Spotting, we reviewed it, that opens Age of Ultron. Mm -hmm. It's a seemingly single take of every Avenger in this battle attack that swoops among them without cutting, although we know it's been done at some point, and again, it enhances that teamwork element of these films that you really appreciate, Tasha. So that's an example of CGI being used really well. Now, unfortunately, in Age of Ultron, that's the only instance that I remember it being used that effectively. They do try to return to it in the climax, and it gets chopped up with some editing and, and isn't quite as effective. So if I had to choose right now, I still like practical effects. I feel there's just a tactile nature to those, and you're in the moment more. Um, but maybe that's because we're used to getting a lot of bad CGI instead of good CGI. Yeah, I mean, it's still it's still evolving in a way, and and I, I think and this is it's this in some ways is, this is a difference of sensibilities in filmmakers. But if you think of like the big city clashes in um, either Avengers film versus the big city clash in the first Transformers movie, which is the last one I saw, because why would I do that to myself if I didn't have to? <laughs> uh, uh, it's just so much more coherent and 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 easier to follow the action, but. Uh, um, so in some ways, I think people are, are getting better at these tools and, and filmmakers with a, um, with, a, with a better sense of how to use them or, or finding new ways to use them. I feel like there's an association between tra- practical effects and authenticity, which makes a lot of sense, especially when it comes to, to combat. Um, like when you see a, a sort of throwback film like Haywire, where a lot more of that combat is being staged in such a clear way that you can follow it, people associate that with a kind of authenticity as though those people are really fighting. It, it almost feels like the the feel that you get of like going to the circus and seeing people actually physically do dangerous things. And I get the same sort of feedback sometimes about uh, like action sequences involving car crashes. If there are actual cars and they're actually being crashed, there's a feeling that if you read that that's, those were real cars, maybe you can't tell the difference on screen. Maybe you can. It depends on how good CGI is. But if you know that that's real, you take it more seriously in a way, which I find to be an interesting phenomenon when it's based in this medium that's so much about fiction. Like you come to see a fictional construct, and yet somehow that's a more important fictional construct to you if you're told that there was a reality behind the fictional construct. But that's even a matter of technique as well. I mean, yeah, you have the physical object, so there's some level of authenticity there. But take, for example, the original Mad Max, and I think The Road Warrior is a huge leap forward in terms of the action for me. Having just watched the two recently, the ambition is certainly there in the original Mad Max and the the vision. Some of those stunts, though, they will cut from a car that's careening towards something threatening or dangerous, and then it will cut to a different angle, and there's just something about the cuts. In one case, it's because in the second one, when you see the car, there's clearly no driver, (laughs) but there's something about that transition where you realize time has passed, whether it's the angle or whether it's the second shot of the car itself just falling in a different way, and you can get a sense that, okay, they shot the approach 
set everything up differently and then shot the landing. Um, whereas in The Road Warrior, there's a, a seamlessness. It's like the director, George Miller, and, and his crew ha have really gotten going there and figured out how to make this feel like one continual experience. And I think you can apply this to fight scenes too. A, a lot of times we'll talk about, or I appreciate fight scenes in action films that are just a long take and does not involve a lot of editing. And why? It's what you're talking about. It's authenticity. I feel like, well, if they haven't edited, they haven't pulled anything on me. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I'm seeing everything right here. Now, editing and fight scenes, Raging Bull, can also be their own form of artistry. So it, it does really come back to the technique, whether you're practical effects or CGI. It's part of why I'm interested in, in I mean, Miller is so good at that kind of thing. It's part of why I'm really excited uh, to see the new Mad Max film, which has, as of I record this, we haven't seen yet. But um, it's just to see what he does in, you know, in, in 2015. And this is someone who's just sort of the master of the practical effect. And, and, and um, there, I know there's some CGI to supplement it, but just how he uses those tools is, is going to be really interesting to me. Um, and, and we haven't actually seen anything from, from Miller in, in a while, apart from the, the Happy Feet. The, the Happy film. Feet are so the most recent it's, it's such an odd career, but I'm, I'm very excited to see what he does uh, returning to this particular uh, area of his uh, filmmaking. We go through these cycles in, in filmmaking and how films use action. It feels like we've gone from sort of the Mad Max era of, of clarity and construction in action scenes to a more impressionistic and stylistic kind of action and then back again. That, that feels like something that happens sort of on a long cycle. And to me right now, it feels like we're we're a little past the cusp of like let's go back to clear action scenes where you can tell what everything's happening whereas like the Bourne movies seem to be like a high point for everything should be impressionistic and you should have no idea what's going on because that makes it more immediate I'm curious how you guys see sort of the cycle of how action and action is filmed and used differently in action films over the last couple of decades I think there is a move back though uh, even if we're, we're a little past it with the hand-to-hand -hand scenes in, in terms of like big action scenes. I think, I think there is a move back more toward practical effects. Like I, the Mad Max film, you know, assuming it's good, assuming people like it, uh, is part of a shift. I think the, the way the I haven't seen, obviously, no one's seen the new Star Wars films yet, but the way they're being talked about is as sort of like trying to return to practical effects as much as possible and mixing and moving away from the all CGI all the time of, of the prequels. Uh, and I, I think, you know, the Star Wars prequels, while not particularly beloved even at the time, I, th I think were part of a large shift away towards let's see, you know, everything, you know, what if everything was green screen? What we can do, can we do? And I feel like that may have peaked at this point. And, and there's more of a hybrid approach these days. Well, in the Star Wars prequels, I think are an example. I'm a defender of them, and one of the reasons is because I think at crucial points, they really use CGI in a way that feels like practical effects. And the pod race from Phantom Menace would be one of those instances. That's just, I think, a brilliant sequence that stands among all the Star Wars films. Oh my goodness. And one reason for that is because it uses another element we haven't talked about, which is sound. I mean, sound plays a huge role in this, and Lucas has always paid attention to sound. And you could almost close your eyes during that pod racing sequence and get the feel for what's happening and where we are in that race and who's losing, what the danger is, what's just happened. Um, and, and so that's, that's another element that goes into an action scene. As far as where we might be going, I hope it is more towards this melding of practical effects and CGI and maybe one recent 
film franchise to look to for continuing that would be the Planet of the Apes films. Oh, yeah. Because I think of those, if you were to ask me, I would say, where do those fall on the practical effect or the CGI end? I would, my instinct would be practical effect because I feel like I was in that world so much and could feel those things around me. And then my second thought is, oh, wait, but it's headlined by a CGI actor. Except now, for the fact that <laughs> almost everyone on screen is CGI. It's very well, practical. Yeah, it's, it seemed uh, real to me. Yeah. Although and there so is something to be said for the like the, the use of the, the increasing use of, of mo-capped actors. And I think with Andy Serkis, there's that uh, that feeling Andy Serkis becoming a mo-cap superstar has kind of opened up the idea for the acting, the physical acting done by the actor before the CGI actually matters. And it's become less, let's just create a bunch of digital characters and more, let's capture real people. It's almost really going back to to Disney and their their rotoscoping element to... Yeah, that's a great comparison. Yeah, to get like the smooth motion and the realistic motion of people. And I, I feel like that's a really big step forward, especially with the Planet of the Apes movies where those characters become so evocative even though you are seeing CGI faces and CGI figures. And it is not an easy thing to do. I mean, we were spoiled. We've been spoiled by Circus with his Gollum as well. And then we have Toby Kebbell, who in the most recent Planet of the Apes film gives an even better performance, I feel like, in the, in the vill- as the villain there. But then we get something like Chappie, and you see that <laughs> motion capture. is isn't just a matter of putting the dots on mm-hmm. and prancing around like you're some sort of clown. I mean, there is real characterization going on there. So um, For the record, Chappie, it's just a laugh line at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. So yeah, it's, you know, that, that's motion capture is another tool as well that it's going to very much depend on who's using it and how they're using it, not just that it's being used. Yeah, I hadn't even thought really in conceiving the segment about the sound aspect. I just have to share this. Uh, when I was in Tribeca, I, I attended a symposium that was Stephen Colbert interviewing George Lucas. And at one point, Colbert asked him, you know, do you think the mark of a really good, really well told film story is that you can understand what's going on even with the sound off? And Lucas said, oh, no, no, the sound is one of the most important elements. I mean, that's how I tell my stories. Now the dialogue isn't important, and you just you feel the air go out of the room as everybody just kind of thought back on everything that they've ever really hated about the, sure, the sure. second trilogy in particular, and just you know it was it was playing way too much to type. But you're right, the the sort of the sound element, and it it seems like we're moving more and more towards like these elaborate soundscapes in theaters and theaters that can then can produce elaborate three dimensional spaces, and that does make a really big difference for sound. Especially Especially if you go back and look at, you know, by comparison with the kind of the flatter, more presentational sound of the 70s. Do you guys have a favorite era for action movies? I, I mean, for me, it's so tied up with, with I, I'm, I'm really suspicious um, because it's so tied up with nostalgia, but I really feel like the early 80s were just sort of a high point for, um, you know, makeup and effects and, and you know, th- films like, you know, between the, the, the thing on, on one hand with, you know, with the amazing special effects and that and things like The Howling and th- then also Blade Runner with the use of miniatures and, and combination of, of uh, you know, the production design of that and, all, you know, all that stuff to me is sort of a high watermark. Um, and I think, you know, I don't think anyone's going to argue with me. Those are great achievements, but I also, they're so tied to me, just so tied with, you know, a very formative viewing experience. So I, 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 I'm somewhat distrustful. Yeah. I would give the same answer in terms of nostalgia. That's around the same time period. I was devouring action movies and not a bad time when you have Die Hard, um, which is stands out as just, you know, a supreme example of, 
how to use explosions <laughs> well where they still matter and they mean something. And the Matrix films, I think, is a good example of melding practical stunt work with uh, CGI imagery. But to go back to one that's not nostalgic at all, there's something just really gleeful and liberating about some of the Errol Flynn stunt work. Mm. And you watch something like Adventures of Robin Hood, and it's very choreographed. That is clear. You don't have much sense of danger in it at all. But there's this ballet element to it that maybe takes the place of that that is just so fun to watch and he's like a kid out on at recess on the playground just you know running on the set doing what he wants and that could be a thrill too in a totally different way for an action film hmm. where do you guys want to see action films go from here like what what do you most want to see in action-oriented films at this point how about a return to detail because one of the things that's happening specifically in the Marvel movies, again, we talked about this, Tasha, was the elevating of the stakes, both visually and narratively, so that we are always going to have at least a city in danger and things are crumbling. <laughs> what about a return to what really matters is whether or not the guy on the front of the truck in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I think it's Indy, right, grabs the hood ornament and is it going to give way or not? Hmm. I mean, that when I think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, that is one of the first things I think about. What a small detail in the scope of that film. I don't think about the powers coming out of the Ark and whether or not World War II is going to you know, be at risk or the American interests. I think about one guy hanging on the front of a hood on one little piece of metal. If we could get our blockbusters to scale down while still being super heroic in the way that Indiana Jones was, that would be a welcome thing for me. I love it. Yeah, that's, some, that's something of a, uh, um, similar to a point that Kevin makes uh, in, in his Mad Max piece too, is it's like, you know, uh, there's so much intense um, focus on one guy and a few other people that, that he's trying to protect or avenge uh, as, as, the, as the movie goes on. Uh, I, I think just, I just don't, maybe I'm just being overly negative, but I just don't ever want to sit in a theater with my head swimming, wondering who's doing what, where, you know, just, just sort of a better sense of choreography. And, and you know, I, I, action scenes that feel like they weren't constructed in the editing room, but were sort of planned and sort of had a rhythm going into them. You know, I think that's not a lost art, but I think not enough people who are making big action films um, have the greatest sense of, of how stuff's going to play when it actually screens. For me, it's all just about a desire to see more character expressed through action. I mean, one of the big things that I love about the Avengers films is the feeling that everybody in them has a different thought about fighting, about why to fight, about how that expresses and how they fight and when they fight. And people have complained about the sort of the artificiality of in the second Avengers movie, making them fight each other again. I think there's just there's so much clarity to who they all are individually in how the how and when they choose to bring up battles. And one of the things that I loved most about the, the Hulkbuster sequence is just the feeling that while that all is going on, you're still learning more and more about Tony Stark, a character who's been around for so many films now. You're still watching his his ego fight with his practicality, fight with his simple scientific curiosity while he's pummeling somebody and, and bringing a city down. And that that's what I want to see is just that sense of every fight develops a character further and in a more interesting way and that they aren't just there to, to provide more action beats. Well, I guess I dropped the mic on that one, but uh, at least I dropped it with, with clarity and you could all follow it. Well choreographed, Tasha. Well, it was CGI. We did it in post. Thanks so much for coming in and talking, guys. Thank yeah, you. thank you. 
Dissolve, we often initially watch movies like everyone else, which is to say, fairly close to their release date when the hype is the strongest, and the chances are highest that other film lovers will be watching and discussing the same thing we are. But watching a film a second time is always different, especially if the rewatch comes outside the hype cycle, or a long time after its initial release. There's always more cultural context about a film rewatched significantly after the first viewing, in terms of how the movie was received. Rewatches give us time to assess smaller details in a film, and divorce it from our expectations or hopes about what we think it might be. And for us, at least, that first viewing may be a matter of job duties, but a second viewing is more likely to be for pleasure. Here to look at what we get from rewatching movies well after the fact are... Scott Tobias. And special guest... Josh Larson. Guys, why are you most likely to rewatch a movie? I mean, does nostalgia play a big factor for you? Uh, do you do you actually go back to rewatch a movie strictly for, for critical reasons? It's probably the critical impetus. There's a reason I'm revisiting that specific film. But what I love about it is that gives me a fun excuse to do it. So for Mad Max, as we were talking about, I have never gotten around to rewatching The Road Warrior, even though I devoured it as a kid. Here was an excuse to do it because of this uh, reboot coming out. So, yeah, it's kind of an intermingling of the two. And often the reasoning will bring different questions to mind. Okay, what was the place of the original in the culture? Why are we getting another version in this case? Why are people still interested in this? So those questions will filter my experience of the movie, obviously, because I'm not thinking of those sorts of things the first time around. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I mean, part of it is just it's just a pleasure to rewatch things sometimes uh but 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 for me it's kind of about uh wanting to go back into the world of, of a particular film um you know just being sort of like immersed say in you know Wong Kar Wai's Hong Kong or in Martin Scorsese's Gangland and kind of just being you know uh, you know even even though I'm you know a critic and uh, I'm supposed to I guess people think that critics see uh, see movies from some sort of detached clinical distance i mean in, in fact that's not true you you can kind of lose yourself in, in a movie and uh so that's the you know that's part of it and the other part of it which is related it is uh, just seeing how they did it you know just kind of like getting a getting a deeper sense of just you know the subtle uh you know construction of the film little bits of of you know certain edits and music cues and and you know images and things like that uh that you just can't perceive in one viewing i, I never understood the whole pauline kale thing about not watching never watching a movie a second time because i just feel like you know movies they go they go by fast i mean they used to go by at 24 frames a second i don't know what they do now <laughs> but like but but they go by fast and in in there and there's so many elements just that go go into a single shot in a film and so i think uh uh it's very it's impossible to perceive it all in first viewing particularly you know certain filmmakers it's make it really hard and uh and so it's a pleasure kind of go back and, and and uh really appreciate things that maybe you've missed and that sort of thing yeah well, I'm, I'm really not good at rewatching movies like I, I never have been because i'm so conscious of more and more how many movies there are out there that i haven't seen but mm -hmm. one of the big things i find when i when i do rewatch something is i am i'm not great at at following a lot of the smaller details some of the the stuff you were talking about music in particular um the nuances of performance one of the things i really love about re-watching films is is being able to pick up the smaller things not worrying about where the narrative is going or where i thought the narrative was going and being able to appreciate the craft but i also just i find that a lot of times on a rewatch i can appreciate things about the performance that are because of the narrative that are because of the the storytelling in movies like the prestige for instance there are things going on in the acting choices in that movie that you can't 
not only can't appreciate, but can't even understand until you've seen how the movie ends and you realize what choices they're making about things that you don't know about in the story. So, you know, there's sort of subtleties like that where they're playing to something that will happen later that you don't know. And that's that's one of my big pleasures for a rewatch. Yeah, I think the Kale thing Scott mentioned is interesting because that was certainly a part of what I appreciated most about her voice is that she had that gut reaction, mm-hmm. that initial reaction to it. And I think if she had waited to rewatch something and then write, it would have we would have gotten a very different Pauline mm-hmm. Kale and maybe not as good of one. But I don't think that's an excuse to never revisit. I wouldn't take it that far. Sure. And I think that in terms of what you were talking about, Scott, and the details you mentioned, Tasha, I have that experience when I rewatch things within a few months that I first saw them. And that's when I can really study form more closely because my instinct is probably more to be engaged with the narrative, as you said, Tasha, and that gives me a chance to have a fairly good understanding of the narrative so I can just look closer the second time around. And there are some filmmakers, I think, that we almost deserve a second viewing without even seeing the movie. We just know it's a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Mm. I'm going to need to see it twice. It's a Wes Anderson film. I'm going to need to see it twice. And for very different reasons. I think for me, Paul Thomas Anderson, they are thematic reasons that I want to explore or try to connect those dots. And for Wes, it's just gathering all those details that went by so quickly the first time. Totally. I I agree. And I I think you, I, I do want to kind of go back to that that, that Cal point really quickly because I do you know you can see in her writing that that gut instinct being really critical I mean she's, she wouldn't write something I mean I think you could talk about that last Tango in Paris review as being you know a little r- ridiculous to some degree but it's also so very much, read. it's very much a first viewing reaction like whoa this thing knocked me on my but and if you saw it a second time, that's not the reaction you would have because you 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 you've seen it before. Uh, but but uh, you know I, I had written about you know with P.T. Anderson of course I'd, I you know, I wrote a piece uh, about seeing that film multiple times, Inherent Vice uh, and I call it Inherent twice. And, uh, and and with that it was just like that's another reason I, I rewatched certain things. It's like I didn't get it get it completely. I just that I just did not perceive everything I needed to see and I have this 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 kind of itch that it's like ah I feel you know that 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 uh that I just things are not resolved for me because I just you know my powers of perception are not that sure one of the things you said in that essay I believe was that your critical opinion of a, a piece may change if you see if you see a movie more than once and that people expect a critical writing about a film to be this is my last word on it this is a definitive statement but as you say in the piece it's your definitive statement on how you feel at the movie at the time that you're writing about mm-hmm. it how often do you guys rewatch movies I mean if you watch a movie 20 years later your opinion is going to be different because you're a different person but how often do you watch a movie maybe a year or two later and find your opinion on it radically different from your first take. I always think of about Schmidt when Mm. this question comes up because that was certainly one. I was still trying to get a handle on Alexander Payne, I Mm. think, and what he was up to, especially that continual question with him and his treatment of characters. Mm -hmm. And about Schmidt was just one that I initially did not like. I just didn't find that it had that level of unique empathy. I think he has a very unique empathy I've come to discover, especially in something like Nebraska, which is a similar film in some ways. And I love Nebraska, but only because I have seen other pain films since and started to get a better handle on what he is up to. So that's one example that comes to mind for me. Yeah. You know, on that whole issue, I always felt like, feel like critics are too reluctant to, um, admit that that you know items shift during flight you know <laughs> like there was a um uh there was an episode that siskel niebert 
did called uh, uh, "You Blew It" uh, once, where they were, where each of them brought up you know uh, instances like Roger Ebert on Blue Velvet and Roger Ebert on you know that horrible uh, uh, cop and a half uh, where they just t- called out each other's mistakes. And but I felt like a, such a better show would be like "I Blew It." Like here's here's an example. Here's a film I went went on record saying was great or terrible. Uh, but uh, I had it wrong for whatever reason because uh, I, I feel like that kind of that's just that's just a human thing, you know. You just you, you just maybe you watch it, or you, you maybe you just don't get it at a time, or maybe or maybe or maybe later you don't get it. But you're cha- you're just a, you change and films yeah. change and and uh, and uh, your opinion changes. And it's, so I think you know there should be a tacit understanding with every review that that is that is a record of your thinking at a specific time and not written in stone and there could be two things going on there you could be just absolutely wrong like on blue velvet or it could be that what you're saying you're a different person you have different interests different things about film appeal to you as you change and mature so that's definitely something i think you know it's not easy for me to (laughs) to look back and say and admit we spend so much time as critics arguing for our opinion and our point of view it feels inherently unnatural (laughs) to do the opposite but yeah. it's it's definitely another form of critical exploration that has a lot of value. How much does the the changing like cultural context of a film change for you on a rewatch? I mean, how much does it change rewatching a film ten years later if you know it was a classic? Uh, you know that it has it's withstood the test test of time that people have loved it that have it's endured versus if it made a lot of money and was never heard of again or if it flopped hugely. Does that factor into your thinking about a movie at all, or is that just as Scott always likes to say, extra textual? I think it probably is extra textual, but it's hard to resist. You know, that's where the contrarian side might kick in and you want to say, you want to rescue something that's always been dismissed. Years later, that's sort of the first critical impulse, I think, is that this really deserves a better audience. Or sometimes, you know, we have a series of reviews we do on film spotting called Sacred Cow, and we give it that name because there are certain films, whether they're Raiders of the Lost Ark or To Kill a Mockingbird, anything like that that has this storied reputation. And to ask yourself a couple of things. Why has it gotten that reputation and has that reputation persisted over the years? And what are the cultural factors for that? But also, let's go back to the text, Scott, and say, looking at this just as a movie, as a craft, does it hold up? Yeah, that's a, that's that can be a really good exercise. I mean, the thing for me, the thing for me, and this is, is that I, I like, uh, uh, you know, the, when movie comes out, it's particularly maybe maybe a political film. Uh, um, I, I like um, being able to go back, go see a film, you know, a year or two or several down down the line, just because I feel like it just gets rescued from whatever the cultural conversation that is happening at the time. I mean, I, you know, I was I was I've been you know something like Zero Dark Thirty or something. That's exactly what was I was my, thinking. Was of. my yeah. perfect example. It's just kind of like this thing just got, or American Sniper for that matter. That was the film I didn't one. like that much, but like. But, you know, I really want to see what that film looks like when, when we're not really seizing upon this really important political issue that's really that's critical to a lot of people who really aren't necessarily film people, um, you know, and just, you know, and, and even as history itself plays out and we get a better understanding of, of, of what it looks like. I mean, maybe maybe you can can look at at, at what happened, uh, you know, in the hunt for Osama bin Laden now and have a have a better perspective on on zero dark 30 than you could at the time that it came out in a you know it, it may maybe the critics are right on that i don't know but it's just it feels much better to to watch a film away from all of that white noise and just be able to kind of kind of take take it in without uh w- without 
a lot of people in your ear on it. I mean, Scott, how is that going to play for you? We we tease you a lot about your deep-seated love of torture porn, sure. which you prefer to call extreme cinema. Yes. I think you're always going to love Audition because yeah. you know, that is a really well-crafted movie with a lot going on for it. But so many of those films, you've written so much about how those films are about an American reaction to the fear of torture, with, like focused on a specific time and place around what was going on in American politics at the time. Mm-hmm. Ten years from now, are you still going to have the same affection and interest in those films, divorced of the cultural context and your awareness of what sparked them? Oh, totally. I mean, I actually think, if anything, time is going to be, is always kinder as far as that's concerned. At time, we can just, it, it helps us to have that distance and to to, um, to really kind of see well what did this uh, what do these movies say about America at the time you know I, I actually think it's harder to, to, to actually be in the moment and, and be able to, to make those sorts of statements uh, um, it's it easier is, to see them as a group too as yeah, time goes totally. on maybe and, and that I mean, clarifies things I mean, a bit people weren't talking about like looking at Last House on the Left and saying this is about Vietnam and <laughs> the way people were th- feeling about the, the, the war I mean like uh, but I think now you can look at it and say, well, well, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Last House on the Left. I mean, these are all part of a, a, a larger cultural context that may not have been clear to people back then, but are, but are certainly clear now. Do you guys have favorite movies you like to go back to either to see, you know, this is what filmmaking looked like 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, or to see maybe this is, in some cases, I just, like, I, I always come back to the parallax view. And not just its, uh, you know, its opinion of, like, political paranoia of the time, but, like, the simple fact that the star gets on a plane and, like, hands 50 bucks to the stewardess for his ticket. He just walks onto the tarmac, walks onto a plane, and, and buys a ticket from the stewardess. And that is just such a portrait of a place and time that we are not in anymore. I'm curious whether you have films you like to go back to and watch for those portraits of a time. Yeah, for whatever reason, 70 movies, 70s movies really do kind of stand out as their own, the style, the look of them, everything. You can see a few seconds and be like, oh, that's a 70s film. But as far as revisiting, I, I find that Wells is just so useful mm. for this. And for the first time, believe it or not, I watched The Magnificent Ambersons recently. And the interesting thing about him is that he's very much of an era, a filmmaking era, yet he was always at the extreme forefront of that era in terms of technique and craft and what he was doing, whether it was narratively or with the camera uh, or even production design. And so those are kind of mile marker films, I feel, that we can revisit and get a sense of when the movies started to really blossom in a certain way. He was usually there. I, I love watching movies for that very reason. I mean, like, I, I, off the top of my head, um, I love to see movies uh, 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 set in New York, you know, before Times Square was cleaned up, you know, like slasher movies or things like Miss 45 or, or, or you know, I think, what is it? Was it Maniac? What's the, what's the, is it Maniac? Or what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, the thing I'm thinking of was like 1980. In any case, uh, it's, it's just nice to see, you know, a setting before it was completely kind of cleaned up and just see what the city looked like, you know? It's just, it, it, it doesn't look like that that way anymore. That's, 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 so that's one of the wonderful things about about movies is like a, like a time machine. Yeah, I think people have said in general. I can't. I I personally came to this uh, this information from Noel, but it's possible that he was following some somebody else in saying that all all, all narrative movies are documentary movies in a way if they're mm-hmm. set in a real place, if they're shot in a real place. So I mean that's fascinating. We should uh, we should wrap this up and go rewatch some movies. But uh, just b- b- as a as a last question out, is there a particular movie that you would recommend that people specifically rewatch because they're going to get more out of it? Like the second or third or fourth time 
Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm. Uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. Which, oh I, boy. Which, I, which I've seen about, which I've seen probably about ten times now. You really are looking to poke this mic stand know, in my eye. I know, bringing I love, up I the just, Wolf of Wall it. Street. Love it. Oh. I can't. I cannot. I did give that, that one a second chance. Yeah, still uh, didn't do it. As as an example of feeling like, okay, what did I miss here? What did I yeah. get wrong? And I was like, no, no, I saw all the parties. I didn't miss any of those. Oh, so good. Yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah. a completely different experience that I think will take an entirely yeah. another segment. The the where you rewatch and realize you were right all along in that movie. You, <laughs> yeah. you had the right take oh, yeah. about most that of the, movie most originally. Of the time, most of the time I, I rewatch something, it's like, Tobias, you're, <laughs> I'm you're, brilliant. You're dead on, man. <laughs> Nailed it the first time. Don't need to go back. All right. Well, thanks so much, guys. Uh, so you guys all want to go rewatch Grand Budapest Hotel now? Sure. I like that Let's one. do it. All right. Now we've come to the game segment of the podcast, which I'm calling Movie Themes, because Genevieve made me do it. In honor of Pitch Perfect 2, I'm going to play you some acapella renditions of some well-known movie songs, including scores, themes, and a few iconic numbers. First buzz-in gets a chance to identify the song and get a point. Everyone else is forced to hang back the background and contribute lame bum-bum-bum-bum-bums. Scott Tobias' rule is in effect, so a wrong guess loses you a point. Here to hum along are Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias... And Rachel Handler. You guys ready to identify some acapella music? Always. Yeah. I think I should be exempt from my own rule, though. <laughs> I think the, the, the Scott Tobias rule should count double for Scott Tobias. So if you get one wrong, you lose two points. <laughs> All right, scorekeeper Genevieve, are you ready and waiting? Mm-hmm. All right, let's hear it. <laughs> Keith Phipps. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, it is, in fact. It's uh, technically the Indiana Jones theme, but we don't really care about titles. We just care about you identifying the song. Okay, so here we go with number two. Keith is When You Wish Upon a Star? It is, in fact, wish you, When You Wish Upon a Star. Uh, Scott, you're getting skunked. Your, your two-second uh, rule is, does not seem eh? to be in effect. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm terrible at games, but <laughs> no, no, you're really good at the audio games, remember? Uh, oh, these, right. These are the yeah. ones where you shine. No. Remember, you should I'm be winning. I'm only good at Vin Diesel games. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next four are all sung by Vin Diesel. Okay, good. All right, here's number three. Scott Tobias. Batman? You are correct. Yes. That is Danny Elfman's Batman theme from 1989. Uh, number four. Ready? <laughs> Scott. Top Gun? No. You lose a point. Uh, was that Rachel? Was that you? No. Footloose. I, yeah, <laughs> I was just about to get in my head song. trying to get there. <laughs> we all pause for the little uh, dd in there because how could you miss out on that wow all right here we go uh scott lost a point for that so we've got what keith with three scott with zero and rachel waiting for a vin diesel question all right <laughs> number five <laughs> scott psycho you are correct oh boy <laughs> it's not that rough even, even in acapella it's it's chilly Hey, oh yeah, yeah. The, the full the full version of that is uh, is pretty amazing. All of these we should uh, say at this point. All of these can be found on YouTube. Uh, we just ganked the audio. We'll link to them so you can hear the full versions of these uh, online if you like um, via the uh, the podcast text because uh, every, everybody here deserves credit. Uh, some of these, a lot of these came from uh, the same artists, but there are there are also a lot of them from uh, from like college groups um, and occasionally like professional groups on stage. Uh, speaking of which, let's move on to number six 
James Bond. You are correct. That is the original James Bond theme. Yes. And now we're back with uh, with Scott and his two second thing. So nobody Let's actually gets to hear the songs. Well, that's come on now. They, Got a, this of, is, is this not a buzzer game? It feels we have like to wait for it the whole feels thing. Like, no, it doesn't. But it does feel like all acapella music uh, kind of starts the I same. I think we should actually. I think I think we should change the game to where we have to like continue the theme like acapella style. Not, not even name it, just continue it. Just <laughs> well, keep the, I mean, it. it's acapella. You'd have to. We'd need to get twenty more people in this I room. <laughs> Wait, you're, you're bringing me around on this idea, Scott. I, you're, you're convincing do, do, me. Do, do, that was do, do. uncanny. You know what? The rest of this game is going to be Scott Acapella's themes, and you guys have to guess them. And I'm just going to sit here laughing. Uh, except that I want to go ahead and play this one. All right, so number seven. Keith Oh, I buzzed it. I before I knew. Uh, oh, sorry. You guys want to? I'm choking. Song, I'm totally choking. Know. Oh! You, you can't rebuzz oh. it. Sorry, you're out of the running. Uh, Rocky? Oh, oh well, uh, I have the I tiger. I have the I tiger. Know this. I just can't think of it. Like, I know the song. I can do the acapella thing where I sing the rest I think, of it. I think, I think if you name which Rocky film this is in, then you get the point. Uh, I, I, I think naming the actual song was I have the enough. tiger. That's pretty good. Uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. The lyrics. I'm really bad at this game. <laughs> yes, but now it's become like, the chair dancing the, game. I know the song. I just don't know. I think you can get extra points for chair dancing. Okay, good. Their instruments are their voices. <laughs> <laughs> Baby on board, something, something, Bert Ward. All right, so we've got Keith at two. He's got us pulled ahead with three. Uh, <laughs> Rachel Stein, three indecent questions. <laughs> All right, number eight. Rachel? Um, Harry Potter. Yes. <laughs> do you, I, I, just out of curiosity, do you know what this actual tune is called? Uh, it's John Williams. It's... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh, speaking of Hogwarts chair dancing, theme? Genevieve is bouncing up and down in her Genevieve? chair and waving her arms. Oh. It is, in fact, called Hedwig's Theme, but identifying the movie was established as all you needed to get these correct. All right, here we go with number nine. Scott? Star Wars? Yep. Main Star Wars theme. Yeah. A long time ago, in an acapella group far, far away. <laughs> all right, number 10. I need Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> yeah, you gotta have the eye of the yeah, tiger. Yeah, I gotta get thing. it back. I, I, Come on now. <laughs> it's the will of the fight. Every one of you has seen this movie. Oh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Rachel. <laughs> I love this song. <laughs> I'm surprised that one got to the uh, to the lyrical part, but uh, uh, quite a few of these do. So mm. uh, uh, this one, however, will not. If nobody gets this in the first two notes, uh, I am quitting this job. All right, number <laughs> eleven. Keith? Also, Space Zarathustra. <laughs> it is from 2001: <laughs> Space Odyssey. It's one of the few songs uh, among these that really sounds made for acapella. Hmm. Or or an orchestra. 
Also, if I'm not mistaken, the voices are the main instrument on in the original piece. So, well, yeah, that's yeah. why it sounds like it. Right. All right. Uh, what, are, what do we what do we have for scoring? I, can't, I can never keep track of the back and forth in the heat of the moment. All right. Are you saying in the heat of the fight? Yeah. Rising uh, up it, to the challenge of arrival. <laughs> If you can sing the whole song, we might give you your point back on that one, Keith. All right, so uh, so we got Keith at three, Scott at four, and Rachel at two. It's anybody's game with four left to go. Uh, here is number twelve. <laughs> Scott. Saturday Night Fever. Correct. What's the name of the song? Uh, uh, Staying Alive. Yep. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Barely got to hear that. Also, airplane. This is the problem with having Scott in these musical games. It's kind of like, uh, you know, here you get you get a note of the music. You yeah. Don't, you don't you don't get a sing along time. <laughs> yeah. And next time it's definitely going to be the sing along song. All right, number thirteen. It's the Mission Keith? Impossible theme song. Correct. By Layla Schifrin. <laughs> Don't show off. You don't get extra points for that. Oh, I love yeah. Keith. No, but Keith is always trying to get it. Like, Keith can get extra points with trivia. You can get extra points with singing. Rachel can get extra points with with chair dancing. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Nobody else is really going to gonna see how great this all is, but it's, it's going to be entertaining for me. All right, number 14. Faces lit up. I know. Keith? Uh, Sorry, Scott. That's from Dangerous Minds. It's Gangster's Paradise. No, I see why you would see that. But no. Oh my gosh, that's an outrage. Loses a point and the song continues. I thought it was that too. No, I think it's that. (laughs) You'll get it in a second when the the lyrics start. Keith? Oh, uh, oh, it's a a, uh, Goldeneye. No, 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 not going. I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, 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 oh. I'm sorry. I well, think Scorekeeper Jenny is marking believe, you off uh, on that one. As my, as my uh, family would say, a card laid is a card played. Yeah. This, uh, this one's Rachel's to lose. Yeah. Skyfall. Yes. Uh, from a, mo- a little movie called. <laughs> Keep saying words. Come on. Skyfall from a movie Skyfall. from the movie James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I say Golden Eye? I don't know why you said Goldeneye, but we've got a, a very, very close game here with uh, Keith and Rachel both at three and Scott at four on the last mm. question. You guys are going to have, like, if you if you tie and make me just hum songs for the next half an hour, I'm going to be really annoyed. <laughs> uh, let's see what this last one does for you guys. Rachel? You uh, haven't you haven't said it yet. You still There you go. <laughs> there you go. There it, there it is. <laughs> All right. So that uh, that I believe leaves us with a tie between uh, between Scott and Rachel. All right. We're going into uh, extreme overtime timeout here while I while I figure out a tiebreaker. Okay, we're back. And thanks to the magic of podcast editing, you did not see the mad scramble to find more acapella themes on YouTube. Uh, but now we're set up. I, I felt bad about picking a single song because, uh, you know, Scott would uh, Scott would be more likely to recognize the North by Northwest theme and Rachel would be more likely to recognize everything from Pitch Perfect. Uh, so instead of uh, picking a single song, we've got three. Um, Keith has been eliminated and is uh, skulking in the corner, humming and beatboxing to himself. Uh, and this is... Uh, Three in a row for uh, Rachel and Scott to determine absolute musical supremacy. Go ahead. Here we go. Bonus round one of three. 
Scott Tobias. Pink Panther. You are correct. Oh, yeah. All right, bonus round, two of three. It's such a mournful version of that song. (laughs) So sad. This is the very tragic version of Bare Necessities. All right, and we are still tied as we go into the final bonus round point. Here we go. You guys ready? Yeah, I'm just really sad about the whole Bare Necessities. (laughs) This is literally for all of the marbles. We have a bag of marbles right over there for you. Scott. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop. You are correct. Do you remember oh, what the name of this song is? Axel F. You are correct. Oh, yeah. All right. That, as that's the, that's as, the stuff. As the grand winner, you get to decide whether we just sit here and listen to this song for the rest of the day. <laughs> oh, no, I'll just do it. You can, we can join, join in, Rachel. <laughs> Crank it, Genevieve. Crank it, DJ Genevieve. <laughs> wow. Come on, I was promised a little singing here. No, I can't. I can't, I can't do this. At least Rachel's I'm just chair. giving the chair dancing. <laughs> which is, the which chair is dancing. Odd, the audio chair dancing. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you for competing. Uh, that was uh, that was uh, that was exciting. I look that forward was. to when we all form our band together. Thank you, Tasha. Thank you. And speaking of podcast games, in podcast number 34, the last time I hosted, we played a game called Double Feature, a new name that movie card game from Renegade Game Studios. At one point, the players were stumped trying to come up with a thriller movie with a dance sequence, and we had to introduce a new card in order to move the game along. We asked listeners to contact us via our Google Voice number to let us know what we'd missed. We heard from you via email and Twitter, and we thank you for all the suggestions. There are more of these than we realized. But here are some of the calls that we got with suggestions for what we'd missed. This is Tom from New Haven, Connecticut, a longtime Dissolve reader and and listener, I guess, as long as it's been around. Uh, thriller or Mystery with a Dance sequence, Mulholland Drive, the very first thing that came came to mind, that opening jitterbug sequence. Uh, that might perhaps be the, uh, at least one of the most disturbing elements in a very disturbing and confusing film. Uh, I'm sure there's more, uh, more dancing in other David Lynch thrillers, maybe Blue Velvet. I think Dean Stockwell dances in that one, but... Yep, Mulholland Drive. Hi, this is TJ from Columbus, Ohio, and on the podcast this week, there was the question about a mystery or thriller that included a dance sequence, and I'm going to say Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because the title alone uh, makes it a mystery, and it includes the bar scene with the weasels that is a song and dance. Hi, this is Neil. On your recent episode, you had trouble finding a mystery slash thriller with a dance sequence, and my first thought was Pulp Fiction, while it might be hard to, well, categorize it in genre at all. I, I believe it would fit in thriller, and the Jackrabbit Slim sequence certainly fits under, under the dance sequence heading. Hi, my name is Nate, my last name is Withheld, and Donnie Darko actually satisfies all three of those categories. Somebody's name, it's a thriller, and it has a sparkle motion dance sequence. So, yeah, put that in your podcast and smoke it. We also heard from game co-designer and illustrator John Kovalik himself, letting me know that we botched a rule on that part of the game. When the players are stumped and a new card is introduced, so there are three on the table, the oldest card gets awarded as a point. The second oldest is discarded, and whoever took the point gets to choose a new category. 
We've heard from some of you who bought the game after the podcast, so we just want to emphasize we're sorry for misleading you. And remember, kids, listening to podcasts is no substitute for actually reading the rules. We promise to make it up to John and the Renegade crew by playing Double Feature again at some point on the road. And for the rest of you, remember that if you call in with a suggestion or a message for us, you may hear it on a subsequent podcast. You'll hear the number again at the end of the show. This week, we're asking hometown hero Genevieve Kosky to stand up to visiting team member Josh Larson in our competitive recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. It's a weighty responsibility, and she's at a disadvantage, but I'm going to wave a tiny home team flag throughout the entire thing to balance out our natural desire to please our in-studio guest with a big win. (laughs) Usual rules, both competitors have 30 seconds to recommend something film-related for my critical judgment. Genevieve, as the home team, has elected to go first. Genevieve, let's hear it. At the risk of offending a room full of movie podcasters, I'd like to recommend another movie podcast called I Was There Too. Every two weeks, host Matt Gorley sits down with actors who play minor roles in major films and talks to them about the experience of filming these huge movies, which is particularly interesting to hear about from people who weren't the stars of these films. Recent episodes include the great Stephen Tobolowsky talking about Groundhog Day, DC Person talking about Captain America the Winter Soldier, and Jeanette Goldstein freaking Vasquez talking about aliens. It's a really fun concept that leads to some really interesting conversations. Uh, I recommend starting with Paul F. Tompkins on There Will Be Blood, episode one, and working through all 14 episodes. It's great. I didn't even get to it. I had so many more examples. Well, those were some pretty good examples, but I, I'm 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 still trying to catch up with you. I think I'm about ten seconds behind. That was a lot of. It words. was a little offensive too, Tasha. Don't forget that. I know. I coming onto our podcast to recommend another podcast to another podcaster. I I think I think you should be offended, and I think you should channel that into uh, into a thirty second. All win. right. Let's hear what you have to say. I'm going to sell you, Tasha, on an experience. In the great new film, Ex Machina, the setting is fantastic. It's this house where the inventor, played by Oscar Isaac, is creating this AI intelligence. It's actually part nature, part an actual house. The rock, the walls kind of go into the rocks, and it kind of echoes the theme of a body having artificial intelligence. You can stay there. It's the Uvet Landscape Hotel in Norway. It's only about 350 euros, and if you want to go, Tasha, I will lend you the money. <laughs> Oh, that's cheating. <laughs> that is cheating. Tasha, but if, if you if you listen to my to the podcast, land, I land. recommend I will also send you on a vacation. <laughs> oh, you're not just going to pay for like any uh, podcast downloading costs I incur from uh, subscribing sure, Gina, to it. You know, I will I'll buy you a, a premium subscription to the podcast uh, app of your choice. Thirty seconds to sell is getting more and more bribery. Uh, no, related. no, I, I said lend, so it's not a bribe. <laughs> You can pay ba- you can pay back in installments over a long, long period of time. What's the interest rate on this? Oh, I haven't looked into that. Okay, I, okay, this is this is getting thick and difficult. There's my tiny home team flag. There's uh, visiting visiting team advantage. There's all of this money being thrown at me. Um, wow, it, that, but I mean, even just like on a basic level, like I like all of those people, and I would like to hear them talk about movies. I, that uh, the hotel in Ex Machina. I didn't know that that was a hotel. So you've brought me new information. My my mind boggles. I am really tempted to uh, to flip a coin. But you know what? I'm going to default to the cheap and cheesiest way to do this, and I'm giving it to Josh because he came in under time and wow. you came in over time. Yes. So uh, you know he wins on the technicality. You guys don't always let the visitors win. Do you? No, just to be nice. No, we don't okay, always good. let the visitors win. Just to be nice. We really like uh, just kicking them in the shins to send them out the door. <laughs> but uh, but both. 
both of those things sound uh, really pretty awesome. Uh, I'd, I probably would have uh, been more likely to give you the win instantly if you'd given me the money. So yeah. next time, full on bribe. Although Come why with the cash. Why you'd even bother giving that you actually won, I don't know. I really screwed that up. <laughs> There's really no way to, to deal with my shame except to go to Norway. and Norway or? Norway. Go to Norway and, uh, and sit in a hotel with a blanket pulled up over my head. There you go. And listen to that podcast. Yeah, and listen to the podcast, to every episode of that podcast. And Josh, uh, extra thanks for being our special guest today. Where can podcast listeners find more of you? Yeah, thanks for having me. So Film Spotted is pretty easy to find. We're on Friday and Saturday nights here in Chicago on WBZ, but whatever podcasting device you use, you'll be able to find us, iTunes, whatever it might be. And as far as social media for me, Larson on Film is where you'll find me, Twitter, Facebook, Letterboxd, those sorts of places. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I was, in fact, just on the Film Spotting podcast uh, talking about Avengers Age of Ultron. That was a really fun time. Film Spotting is one of our all-time favorite podcasts. Uh, no offense to Genevieve's recommendation. And we highly recommend it if you want more about film. And now we've come to the end of another Dissolve podcast, so it's just about time to stop chair dancing along with Rachel and head to iTunes, where we always appreciate your reviews and feedback. Those move us up in the rankings, boost us to a wider audience, and help us keep podcasting away. You can find the Dissolve on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook, and at thedissolve.com. If you have questions, comments, topic suggestions, or game ideas, email us at info at or give us a call at our Google number, 773-234-9730. And if you leave a message and we take up your topic, we may play your message on a future podcast. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. Now go watch some movies and we'll see you in two weeks.